0: Hi, I'm Salif Faez, and you're listening to The Road to Open Science, a podcast brought to you by the Utrechtgang Academy. We are back after the summer break with our fourth edition. And as we continue our journey to the heart of the open science discussion, I'm joined by two inspiring guests. My first guest is Rosanne Herzberger. As well as being a firm believer in open science, she's a columnist for the Dutch NRC newspaper and a regular face on Dutch TV. She studied life science and technology at the Technical University in Delft and in Leiden University. Rosanne pursues her own biology research on the principles of open kitchen science and reports all her findings on her blog, thereblab.org. We will also hear from Egon Willinghagen, a chemist and researcher at Maastricht University who first became involved in open science more than 20 years ago because he could not find the resources he needed as a student, so he decided to do something about it. The title of this episode is The Untapped Potential. Do you want to know why? It will become clear in a few minutes.
1: My name is Rosanne Herzberger, or, um, well, they call me Rosanne, I, I suppose, in English. Um, and I, am, uh, I consider myself a writer, a columnist, and a microbiologist. And um, I've done all those activities side by side for a very long time. When I studied life science and technology in Leiden and Delft, I already wrote for the university paper, the Mare in Leiden, and I uh, landed a column there. That kind of got uh, out of hand, and while I progressed in my studies, also the writing progressed. During my master's degree, I already became interested in food, and the food industry, and what they do with fermentation, very interesting. I graduated, and then I went on to do a PhD, but I left Leiden, and then the question was, what I'm going to do with that weird column that is not really a hobby or a side thing anymore. It's, it, it had gotten pretty big at that point, so then I wrote to NRC if they would give me a column, and they did. So, uh, in, in terms of income, like I was paid to do science, and I had some side income. Side activity was the newspaper. Then I went on and did a postdoc in the United States transferring from basically food, lactobacilli, the lactic acid bacteria that are active in a lot of our dairy fermentations. I went on to study those same or let's say closely related lactobacilli in the context of the female reproductive tract or if you're okay with that, I will use the word vagina. (laughs) Um, So vaginal bacteria and vaginal microbiome in sickness and health during pregnancy, during sexual activity. Uh, that was a great time in the USA. I went to St. Louis and uh, still wrote my NRC column. And then I got into a big conflict there with my supervisors. Unfortunately, very ugly for me, for them, for science as a whole. I went back with my three months old. I was writing a book and then I thought, what to do with science? Because writing had kind of gotten, uh, taken over. Um, the function of being my income, paying the bills. So I could live as a writer at that point, but I was very sad. Like I felt like real deep sorrow having to leave science. And then I thought, this is not a fair question. In in or out of science is not, I don't want it to be this black and white. Um, So I asked if I could continue as a guest researcher at the VU, and I uh, started to do research there as a guest, so I have hospitality, I, I have a bench, I have some time to do science, but not a lot, and this is, this is the current situation. So I write, I'm in the media quite a bit, TV, radio, but I also do a lot of talks for industry that pay very well, and every time I get a bit of money, I go back to the lab and be a researcher, unfunded, but funded by myself, so that's really cool.
0: Uh, so you basically use your other jobs to say buy time to do your research uh in some sense it's not very different from the university actually There the people also teach to buy time for their research or write grants
1: and in the hospital i mean uh, doctors who do research do it almost always next to a full practice with patients and i believe that to have the luxury to Devote 100% of your time to science is a uh, is very rare and is also not very realistic. What I would like to do is find alternative uh, business models, basically stuff that's gonna pay for science.
0: Where do you get your questions? Where do you get your inspirations for new questions? Uh, how how is your interactions on the scientific uh, level with the rest of the scientific community organized?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question because that was um it's very intimidating to go back to science and say hi i'm not going to be funded but can i help out because it's i you know maybe you wanted to have his job or you wanted to it it can also it, it is regarded sometimes as a loss right as 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 a a demotion instead of a promotion to leave academia Luckily, I had very good interactions with both the professors that I worked with in my master's degree, uh, my supervisors during my uh, PhD, and all the, the whole lactic acid bacteria community. I've always m- an, a huge experimental wish list uh, that I can never, never finish. And I, I think that that is recognizable for a lot of people. The other thing I do is I go to conferences. So I pay for that myself, which is very expensive but also very fun i always had great a great time like almost like a vacation like like and if you see your science as a love as something that and you you don't feel the stress you know of having to be accomplished having to be better than everybody else then suddenly it's a whole lot of fun
0: there's a huge opportunity because for every phd who ends up finding a job in academia they are 19 or maybe 30 or i don't know 50 the number keeps changing People who live to other sectors, they still keep their love for science, uh, most of them, but not everybody gets the chance to at least dedicate time to his own research or her own research questions. And do you find it easier to collaborate (coughs) with with other people who, like you, do it uh, sort of for fun, or with, say, academicians who do it as part of their job as well, Uh, you already said, there is a different setting because they have the title and they have the position yeah. and they sort of should be open to this acceptance. Do you see organizations of, let's call it kitchen open scientists uh, forum?
1: So as a matter of fact, I'm starting one myself. Uh, so I've, I've done, uh, I, I was, yes, uh, last year I was in a pretty big TV show, which called Zomergaste, And there I talked about this wish to, not only be a life scientist, but be a scientist for life. And uh, a lot of people responded then. They said, I, am res- I want this. Because I'm fed up with academia. I don't want the competition anymore. And there's a lot of complaining, right, in academia going on. About the funds, about everything. So I wrote a few columns about it too. And a lot of people responded to me. If, uh, first, it was only women. Because it's a lot of women. Actually, who, f- who feel most... Who love science and who also feel most let's say rejected by the academic community and, and about the ongoing competition, um, great scientists who who did who had great academic careers or who were just fed up, a lot of them also with private issues with having to match uh, family life and uh, science life uh, now also men, mathematician, bankers, economists, consultants who say. I miss science and I would like to continue. So the idea is I have drawn up a few principles, let's say, guidelines for what I want science to look like. Because if you're gonna do science after academia, you're gonna do it your way, right? You're not gonna, I mean, all the things that were bugging you and that you didn't like about academia, you also want to leave behind. So no, let's say, fighting over author orders. No keeping your cards against your chest because you're afraid that people are going to steal your ideas. A true radical transparency and a lot of people want that. It also means that I want to stop speaking hocus pocus jargon. I want to make it more accessible. Also show the story behind it. So I know that playing around with this science and with open science is serious business. It's not just let's go out and run a 10 miler uh, on the beach on a Sunday morning. It is less innocent because science has authority. So we need to make sure we have some sort of quality control. And I know this because I get weekly when I write about vaccination, I get hi. I'm a psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology and I studied vaccination. And it's all bullshit. So what I'm afraid of is that these people are gonna go out and say, I'm not in academia, but I'm doing open kitchen science. And now I'm showing how vaccination causes autism. I'm afraid of econom- economists who s- start to study climate science. I'm like, I we have to be very careful. Uh, we're very wasteful with people that we educate, that we give a great education, paid with public money to become independent researchers. And then the moment they are an independent researcher, they stop doing independent research and start making money for industry or teach or take care of patients, but do something else. And it's very, uh, it's really a pity that at this moment, these people don't feel the need or the, let's say, the space to continue using their expertise for the benefit of science.
0: So what else would you like the university to do for giving more room to such type of sort of, Activity which is not formally closed, ivory tower academia, but helps it a lot. So, what should the university do to gain uh, the benefits of such activity?
1: I think there's two things. You can provide your alumni with access to your laboratories, to your uh, talks, to your even if you're afraid of confidentiality, some sort of thing, you can still have them sign keep the access to literature, maybe, uh, to lab space, to machines, to stuff. And it's, it's costly. I know uh, my, ho- my hospitality is also not for free. Right. And that's a gift from the university to me. But I hope that uh, that it can it can right, pay off. Right. Uh, what they can do is. Practice radical transparency. So everything that doesn't need really need to be closed because of whatever you want to make money of it or patent it or something open it put all your protocols online dedicate some time to your websites improve them be on social media Uh, throw your posters online live stream your talks or let's say have as a requirement to whenever there's a talk somebody presenting that there's also a version of that online yeah give access and um, not only to your papers, but on, also to everything that goes on behind the scenes, that's second. And that's th- those are two very important things. So access to the uh, laboratory and access to your information. And I, mean, I, I hope that, you, that everybody can see that the open kitchen scientists will give back.
0: Uh, I have one more question. So what do you see, Rep labs. That's how you call RebLabs. Yeah. Maybe first you say, what does it stand for?
1: It was rebellious laboratory and it, it, it so just to just to give you my when I thought of this imagine I was at home with a seven-week-old baby just quitted my job because I was afraid that I'd get fired and if I'd get fired I'd lose my status I'd be an illegal alien instantly me my husband and not my son because he's an American but I was stressed and the thing I cared about most was an experiment that I wanted to do, right? And, and the experiments that were on my wish list. And I was like, if I don't get back to the lab, I will not be able to do this and this and this and this and this. And then I thought, this is an, a solvable problem. Why am I not? At-? And the initial idea, I'll tell you honestly, was how can I do this stuff at home? And I thought, I'm going to be rebellious. I, Really felt that the system I could not fit into the system anymore, and um, I really needed to find a way to do science, let's say, outside of the system.
0: And now that we know Rep Lab is the rebellious lab, where do you see Rep Labs in five years? What do you think it has achieved, and what's its surrounding, what's it's in its conditions?
1: In five years, I hope that. I was able to do let's say two or three let's say findings i'm I'm literally saying findings as in i probably don't have the the time and the money to really really do uh, take it to the take it to the end to really double down on it but at least show the community hey i found this i found this i found this maybe this is useful for you this is true in your hands so two or three m- more of those like impactful blog posts that's what i'm talking about second i hope to have some peer review done so t- and and then in the sense of real people people looking at my data openly third i hope to have one reproducibility case so so basically a lab who says we're finding the same thing and we're willing to let's say validate that put that together with your finding to say hey this is pretty strong we're going somewhere here I hope to still have hospitality. Uh, hopefully, at the view. I'm very happy there. But I mean, wherever it takes me, I hope to have a group of open kitchen scientists together, and maybe even some funding. You could think of. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, I'm not good at money, but you could think of some, let's say, finance to say to reimburse the universities for hosp- for having us come to the lab. I hope that we have a professionalization step in our. Uh, communication in our blog posts and I hope to have yeah to still have a credible business model in open kitchen science that's what I hope Uh, oh yeah and to be cited (laughs) I want to have let's say five citations or six citations
0: okay and other people using by citing you mean cited in papers or just cited in works or other blogs or
1: cited in writing Scientific writing. So other people say, "Hey, it does look like Lactobacillus crispatus utilizes glycogen, and it utilizes it using this type one peptidase, and that was shown in replab.org/da da 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 da. That's what I hope. So that's a pretty cr- uh, like concrete wish. So in five years, you should come back and say, "Well, Roseanne you're here and here. This has happened, but this has not happened. But yeah. what are you going to we'll do? We
0: will definitely do, do. great." I think it's, it's a very clear vision, and I'm, I'm pretty sure by uh, your determination, you will achieve, if not these, but equally valuable things. Thank you very much, Rosanne Herzberger.
1: Thank you. Sony was a pleasure. Yeah, thank
0: you. you just heard Rosanne Herzberger. She told us that science is missing a lot of potential contribution from trained researchers who don't see being a scientist as an in or out game. And universities who adopt open science practices can in fact create many opportunities for this large group and elevate science as a whole. In a minute, we'll hear more about this big opportunity from researcher Egon Willighagen. He's been involved with open science for more than 20 years. But first, a message from a fellow open science traveler. Actually, a whole group of travelers. Did you know that you can already get free support for practicing Open Science? There's help for training!
2: Are you tasked with developing and delivering Open Science training for researchers in your organization? The good news is you don't have to start from scratch. The European Commission-funded Foster Project provides free access to courses covering all aspects of Open Science. You can check out our handy trainer's handbook, which provides advice on what to cover in training, along with some common misconceptions researchers have about practicing open science, and also some tips on how you can address these. The handbook also provides some examples of practical activities and exercises that you can add to your training to make them more engaging and effective. Find out more about our resources and consider joining our training network at fosteropenscience.eu.
0: And there's help for embedding open science in your daily workflow too.
2: If you're a researcher interested in embedding open science into your daily workflow, but not entirely sure how to go about doing this, then check out Foster's free online training courses covering key open science topics. Each of the 10 courses takes about 1-2 to hours to complete, and explains key issues along with pointers to discipline-specific tools and resources that can help you put open science into practice. You'll earn badges for each course you complete, and you can work towards specialisms. You can access the courses at fosteropenscience.eu forward slash toolkit.
0: So remember to check that out at fosteropenscience.eu forward slash toolkit. All of us on the Road Open Science team love to hear back from you too. So let us know what you think of the podcast. You can reach out via our Twitter handle at r 2 ospodcast or engaging the discussion by putting a comment on the Utrecht Open Science Community Portal at www.openscience-utrecht.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, then why not do so now? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, or on the website of the Utrecht Young Academy, and share the podcast with anyone who is interested in the ongoing open science discussion. We want to get as much feedback as we can to improve our next episodes. Okay. Time for our second guest. Let him introduce himself. Uh,
3: my name is Egon Willegage. I'm a researcher at uh, Maastricht University. Uh, I've been uh, interested in open science for a long time. Uh, started as a hobby. Things I just wanted to know about. Open science has for me been uh, a nice way to interact with people, to collaborate with people. Um, As a researcher in Maastricht, uh, we study a number of uh, different projects, I'm a chemist in origin, so I'm applying chemistry, uh, my knowledge about chemical information and how to handle that to biological problems. And these problems can be uh, computational predictive toxicology, things around drug discovery, protein, drug interactions, uh, and uh, metabolomics data analysis and combining that with biological pathway
0: databases. So, OPASI is... If I understood correctly, sort of an integral part of the way you do research. Am I right?
3: Yes, absolutely. As a student, when I started my, uh, my 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 studies, I quickly ran into the problem that I did not have access to to information. Questions I had, I was unable to answer, or I could only answer um, yeah after needless effort and i decided that that was not the way i wanted to work and this was reinforced by uh, later collaborations via the internet where i was able to contribute to projects uh, because of open science approaches Uh, and that was uh, very rewarding so when was that that was in the second half of the 90s Uh, we, we didn't really have a lot of licensing uh, things in copyright discussions right now but I was making a website about organic chemistry and um, I came into contact with someone uh, Christoph Steinbeck who was creating uh, software to depict and edit chemical structures and uh, Peter Marrost in Cambridge who was uh, working on a representation format, a file format for chemical structures. And I realized that I could use that for the website that uh, I was creating. But the combination of the two didn't exist. Uh, but because both were open, I was able to take parts of both of it, combine that and uh, create something new uh, and contribute this back to that, uh, uh, to that project.
0: So that's almost 20 years ago or more
3: yes i think so i think i think i uh, had contact with them in 97 or 98 so that's 20 years ago yes Uh,
0: and but the discussion of open science and the things we are following now has become more common mainstream especially at the universities and in the major research organizations more in the recent years and we are also seeing more and more new developments do you see a difference between what at this moment we call open science and the open access that 20 years ago you were using for your projects?
3: Uh, that's not an easy question. There, there, there are differences. It's harder for me to decide how important those differences are. Uh, one obvious thing is just scale and with scales come formalities. Another thing, 20 years ago, the term open science did not exist yet. Uh, We had open source licenses. There were no open licenses for documentation. So um, uh, we we, we had uh, a documentation uh, license from uh, from the GNU uh, people. Um, which were not really suitable for uh, yeah for what we would consider open access right now. Uh, so the Creative Commons licenses have simplified things, have standardized things uh, further. I would say open science right now is more mature than it was back then. But since more people are involved, the scale is higher, we also see a lot more well, resistance, if you like, uh, people that try to bend terminology, uh, remove underlying important rights of open science. So which is particularly clear in the discussion around open access. In open access, has, th- that the term has become so so broad, so sometimes meaningless, whereas open science to me points to the ability to use something to reuse that, modify it, uh, and redistribute the changes I made uh, as part of the whole.
0: So you're telling me that open science needs a certain principles, or open access needs certain minimal p- principles to make it useful the way you were using it in the past 20 years. So can you give some examples or a list of these principles? Is there a list of such criteria that? You see, in your view, is necessary to call something really open. Yeah, I think the
3: list uh, it actually consists of only three things. Uh, I I I haven't thought of further needs, and these three things are the same for for open data, for open access, for uh, open source, uh, and they're they're basically just simply the rights that that allow you to continue. Building on top of previous science. So what you need for that is uh, the first thing. Uh, first, first thing is you need to be able to access it. You need to ha- be able to use it. The right to use it. The second right is that you need to be able to modify it, correct things, for example. And the third one is that you can actually reshare uh, what you started with, uh, the new improved thing, if you like. Now these things uh, I think apply for. For, for the various uh, corners of open science.
0: This comes to the community set rules or principles which are actually not written in stone at all. It's, they are sometimes even not written on paper. They are unspoken rules, which sort of given to, from generation to generation. So do you think we need governance for this commonly shared data and also the rules of sharing? I
3: think like with most aspects of science, uh, it tends to be self-correcting and the awareness that data and articles are the same and should be rewarded the same in in, in that respect as well and should be governed in the same way, that is starting to get more ground. I think it, it should be governed but not differently from, from other ways of how we uh, 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 deal with good practices in science.
0: And who should govern such a schemes? Is it a community that comes together and sets a governance scheme? Or should there be the publishers? Or should it be the grant organizations? Or the people who ordered this type of research? How do you think uh, these governance structures take shape? Because I know that you are active in many activities, collective activities, to gather data and to structure them. And I want to ask and know about your experience of the good and the bad sides of doing it collectively.
3: Here too I think the community is self-organizing. So uh, efforts are revolving around projects, around initiatives. Universities have set themselves uh, good practices uh, written documents for that Uh, at national levels we see uh, good practices uh, uh, being written down and defined on how to be a good scientist other than that i'm 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 not sure if we need to formalize this too strongly if it all needs to be uh, be law Uh, on the other hand um, uh, I, i thought it was going to be a hard question but at least one thing is clear it should not be publishers it should be researchers themselves. Our communication platform should not decide how researchers should work together. The platform is just a platform. It's just a means. It's, uh, it, it, it cannot be what decides what researchers do. That should uh, researchers do themselves uh, in collaboration with, with, with others, but not the publishers, I think.
0: So can you give me... Example, among all these projects, you do one example of a project which has been done collaboratively and governed collaboratively and has been a success so far. Success
3: is a bit of a, a hard definition, I think. But I think the projects that turned out doing quite well uh, include, for example, all the chemistry development kit. It's used a lot. It's also cited a lot. We've done there something that uh, made a change to the field.
0: Can you give a short history of... Chemistry
3: Development Kit. It's a cheminformatics library. It was uh, it it uh, resulted from three software projects in in the area of chemistry. We tried to combine there the, the pieces of software on an on a common library. So the Chemistry Development Kit started out as as that common library got extended over time, and uh, by now, so we started that in. 2000, so 18 years later, we have contributions of more than 100 people, which for cheminformatics is quite a lot because that field is so specialistic, it's not actually so large, at least not at the uh, method development side and the using side uh, much more.
0: So is it all voluntarily or is it an association that supports this financially and uh, uh, when it needs some to get resources, do you get it from people or do you get it from institutes?
3: It's it's sort of a bit of both. There is no foundation or association or, or, or company behind the chemistry development kit. At the same time, we're getting contributions from all sorts of sites and uh, like a lot of scientific software, the main contribution comes from paid researchers at academic institutes or industrial institutes for for, for that matter. So. The work effectively is being paid for, but the funding there is not always specifically for the product. The collaborative need was actually uh, the trigger that caused this development. This collaborative development particularly. Uh, multiple people having the same needs and trying to find a solution for that.
0: So I'm not fully aware of your structure of governance or structure of control, uh, maintenance of this uh, development kit. But there are other open-source packages. Python is one example of them. There are certain packages of Python which although they have millions of users, the core development team is somehow 10, sometimes even 100, sometimes even less depends on the package. And one would argue that you know, if these 10 people suddenly you know, decide to do something else or if the project dies, what's gonna happen? How do you address this concern in scientific projects of this scale that you're mentioning? If it is open
3: source or open science, depending on source code or data, uh, and it is useful, then someone else can take it over. And we have seen this for uh, for, for, for projects where, where uh, the lead developer, sometimes one or two people, uh, the lead developers actually uh, step down and someone else takes over. And open licenses, with those implementing those three, uh, three, three uh, core values, core rights uh, actually make that possible. But it's not the only uh, only thing, of course, and um, uh, just putting an open license on, to, on top of something doesn't make it sustainable, doesn't make it maintainable. You'll actually have to adhere to coding standards, uh, documentation standards, testing, testing allowing you to, 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 to indicate what expected values are, or compu- uh, computed values, or uh, return values of functions allowing the next person to understand what the code is doing and understand enough of it so that uh, that person can maintain it.
0: Are, are you not worried or in any of these projects have been the cases of having free riders? Because that's a common thing that comes in say common projects, the, the open projects that people make benefit of it, even commercialize it without giving back to the community because probably giving back to the community is the way that you can sustain such projects for long enough time right as, as
3: a researcher I would love it actually the more people that use it the more your work actually has impact on society so every every researcher should be delighted if people uh, piggyback on, uh, on on your results or leech on it on whatever you would like to call it or, or data parasite if you like as a researcher I think anyone reusing your work, is the highest compliment that you can get. For the chemistry development kit, we actually very deliberately took a license, the LGPL license, that allows uh, embedding in commercial proprietary products because we realized that the foundations of, of cheminformatics is something that we all benefit from and uh, around that. Uh, you might have graphical user interfaces. and uh, But the foundations, if we can uh, agree on collaboratively working on those foundations, uh, and the LGPL allows exactly that. If people make changes to the core library, they're expected to make that openly available. If they make interfaces around the tools around that, they do not necessarily have to.
0: It's, again, by the license that you protect it so that even if it is, you know, Profit is made, the profit does not cut from the original project that was started and does not stop the project from developing itself further. And this is also, I think, a lesson we had from the open access software at the beginning. Um, so so I, I think there is a lot of, lot of room there for, for, for,
3: for mixed models. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm paid for my work anyway, whether I make it open source or if I keep it closed source. I'm paid anyway. I I, Now I have a fixed position at the university. So I have absolutely no excuse, I think, to not make it open source.
0: This topic we had uh, in our previous episodes about the science and the career in science being a star system, that you need to shine to grow and to be recognized. And one thing that big projects that have a lot of contributors has it, that it's relatively difficult to point at the same individual and say you know this is the star and this is the lead uh, and this discourages some people to participate in these projects. First of all have you had this experience and this feeling and do you see that as a downside of doing common projects or you think there's just another type of people that don't care about the system and then see the value in the uh, shared endeavor anyways and somehow stick to the system.
3: Uh, I, I think I recognize this this effect and um, in my experience indeed you need to make a serious effort in getting people involved in uh, in the open source projects uh, that we did chemistry development kit particularly you actually uh, gets very little insight in all the people that are using it and sometimes just only after a a publication gets out you see who uses it and sometimes that might might include actually modifications that they made they have not dared to submit that yet they made a change and for whatever reason they they were uh, not submitting that to the project and, uh, and and contribute back I recognize that a lot and uh, in uh, open source projects and also in other projects uh, you see the, uh, the importance and the use of tracks to get people started to get people to contribute small bits making small steps and uh, our collaborators in San Francisco the group of Alex Pico uh, they developed an academy uh, small steps of this is how you do this and people can start doing this and doing uh, a small task by small task and in this way uh, building up uh, enough knowledge uh, about the project and how the project works uh, not just technically but also uh, in, in, in in terms of collaboration enough skills that they uh, they become familiar enough with everything that they uh, dare to make significant contributions and sometimes this can be really scary, even I have that as a well quite experienced open scientist, always thinking is this going to upset someone
0: but Back to the question was about getting uh, newcomers or people to, motivating people to join such projects. You said you need to train them, probably they are students. I don't know, maybe you can list what is the student's motivation and do they receive the feedback from the motivation they put in? And if there is a system that only rewards the stars and only one in 100 gets you know, a cookie at the end, uh, would that sustain itself or we need to also change it?
3: I think a reward system for a lot of open science projects exists by just being an open science project. Uh, A lot of researchers do research because they want to do research, they have an intrinsic motivation uh, or an intrinsic need. Uh, one of the nice things about open science is anything open science can be reused, uh, can be extended on, and it doesn't go away, or rarely, uh, it can go away, uh, we, we see things disappear, open and not open um, but it's it's there you can extend it on and uh, uh, by yeah, being able to just extend on it, it very often uh, allows you to do things much more quickly, so there are uh, 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 for for things that are valuable, uh, always a lot of people that actually uh, see that open science thing as something they need, so they have their intrinsic motivation. Um, this is, I think, what keeps open science projects going.
0: And uh, for maybe the last thing I I can ask from you, as a university, if a university wants to change strategies or change policies in a way that promotes open science practices what would be your first advice what should change or what should be done my most
3: important message there uh, typically tends to be the following uh, following realization that I rather see 100 percent of people contribute 10 percent to open science than 10 percent of the people contributing 100 percent of science and this is essential you can do open science and it is not black and white you can contribute to to open science in very many ways and you don't have to uh, give away your crown jewels your your core api Uh, you can very well protect your your own business and still contribute to open science Uh, sometimes you have to search a bit for it but most people have things that no longer have value to them uh, or has some value to them but combined with by contributing to open science combined with other things actually get exponentially more value to them and in uh, allowing them to yeah to look into new profitable uh, areas so my main message there is uh, is get people to realize that this th- this thing that open science is not about you must do this or you must do that but that open science is is about collaboration uh, for the bu- uh, mutual benefit
0: more like an option than an obligation. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Egon. It was very nice talking to you. That was Egon Willighagen, researcher at Maastricht University. What struck me when talking with Egon was that the mere act of contributing to a larger project that stays is rewarding by itself. And how simple it is to make such contributions at any level you like and be part of the bigger good. If you want to check out earlier Road to Open Science episodes, you can find them on our website or better still, why not subscribe? And you'll get all additions to date plus announcements for each new one the moment it is published. And please share the podcast too. We are convinced that for the benefit of the whole scientific community, the discussion on open science must include a very broad and diverse range of viewpoints. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at handle At R2OS Podcast and let us know what you think of the podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Utrecht Young Academy and with the support of Utrecht Library. Thanks go to our two guests in this episode Egon Willighagen and Rosanne Herzberger. Research on the podcast came from Marisa Moll and editing from Andy Clark. From me, San thanks for listening.